Section 7 of The Life of Abraham Lincoln. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. The Life of Abraham Lincoln by Ward Hill Lehman. Chapter 5 In the spring of 1832, Mr. Offutt's business had gone to ruin. The store was sold out. The mill was handed over to its owners. Mr. Offutt himself departed for parts unknown, and his head clerk was again out of work. Just about that time, a governor's proclamation arrived, calling for volunteers to meet the famous chief Black Hawk and his warriors, who were preparing for a grand, and, in all likelihood, a bloody foray, into their old hunting grounds in the Rock River country. Black Hawk was a large Indian, of powerful frame and commanding presence. He was a soldier and a statesman. The history of his diplomacy with the tribes he sought to confederate shows that he expected to realize, on a smaller scale, the splendid plans of Pontiac and Tecumseh. In his own tongue he was eloquent, and dreamed dreams which, amongst the Indians, passed for prophecy. The prophet is an indispensable personage in any comprehensive scheme of Indian politics, and no chief has ever effected a combination of formidable strength without his aid. In the person of Black Hawk, the chief and the prophet were one. His power in both capacities was bent toward a single end. The great purpose of his life, the recovery of his birthplace, and the ancient home of his people, from the possession of the stranger. Black Hawk was born on the Rock River in Wisconsin in the year 1767. His grandfather lived near Montreal, whence his father, Paisa, had emigrated, but not until he had become thoroughly British in his views and feelings. All his life long he made annual journeys to the councils of the tribes at Malden, where the gifts and persuasions of British agents confirmed him in his inclination to the British interests. When Paisa was gathered to his fathers, his son took his place as the chief of the Sacs, hated the Americans, loved the friendly English, and went yearly to Malden, precisely as he thought Paisa would have had him do. But Black Hawk's mind was infinitely superior to Paisa's, his sentiments were loftier, his heart more susceptible. He had the gift of the seer, the power of the orator, with the high courage and the profound policy of a born warrior and a natural ruler. He, quote, had brooded over the early history of his tribe, and to his views, as he looked down the vista of years, the former time seemed so much better than the present that the vision wrought upon his susceptible imagination, which pictured it to be the Indian Golden Age. He had some remembrance of a treaty made by General Harrison in 1804, to which his people had given their assent, 
and his feelings were with difficulty controlled when he was required to leave the rock river valley in compliance with a treaty made with general scott that valley however he peacefully abandoned with his tribe on being notified and went to the west of the mississippi but he had spent his youth in that locality and the more he thought of it the more determined he was to return thither he readily enlisted the sympathies of the indians who were ever prone to ponder on their real or imaginary wrongs and it may be readily conjectured that what indian counsel could not accomplish indian prophecy would End quote. footnote schoolcroft's history of the indian tribes he had moved when summoned to move because he was then unprepared to fight but he utterly denied that the chiefs who seemed to have ceded the lands long years before had any right to cede them or that the tribe had ever willingly given up the country to the stranger and the aggressor it was a fraud upon the simple indians the old treaty was a great lie and the signatures it purported to have made with marks and primitive devices were not attached in good faith and were not the names of honest sacks no he would go over the river he would have his own the voice of the great spirit was in the air wherever he went it was in his lodge through all the night-time and it said go and black hawk must needs rise up and tell the people what the voice said it was by such arguments as these that black hawk easily persuaded the sacs but hostilities by the sacs alone would be a hopeless adventure he must find allies he looked first to their kindred the foxes who had precisely the same cause of war with the sacs and after them to the winnebagoes sioux kickapoos and many others that black hawk was a wise and valiant leader all the indians conceded and his proposals were heard by some of the tribes with eagerness and by all of them with respect at one time his confederacy embraced nine tribes the most formidable in the northwest if we exclude the sioux and the chippewas who were themselves inclined to accede early in eighteen thirty one the first chief of the chippewas exhibited a miniature tomahawk red with vermilion which having been accepted from black hawk signified an alliance between them and away up at leech lake an obscure but numerous band showed some whites a few british medals painted in imitation of blood which meant that they were to follow the war paths of black hawk in eighteen thirty one black hawk had crossed the river in small force but had retired before the advance of general gaines commanding the united states post at rock island he then promised to remain on the other side and to keep quiet for the future but early in the spring of eighteen thirty two he reappeared with greater numbers pushed straight into the rock river valley and said he had quote, come to plant corn end quote. he was now sixty-seven years of age he thought his great plots were all ripe and his allies fast and true they would fight a few bloody battles and then he would sit down in his old age and see the corn grow where he had seen it in his youth but the old chief reckoned too much upon indian fidelity 
he committed the fatal error of trusting to their patriotism instead of their interests. General Atkinson, now in command at Rock Island, set the troops in motion. The governor issued his call for volunteers, and, as the Indians by this time had committed some frightful barbarities, the blood of the settlers was boiling, and the regiments were almost instantly filled with the best possible material. So soon as these facts became known, the allies of Black Hawk, both the secret and the open, fell away from him, and left him, with the sacks and the foxes, to meet his fate. In the meantime, Lincoln had enlisted in a company from Sagamon. He had not been out in the campaign of the previous year, but told his friend, Rao Herndon, that, if he had not been down the river with Ophut, he would certainly have been with the boys in the field. But notwithstanding his want of military experience, his popularity was so great that he had been elected captain of a militia company on the occasion of a muster at Clary's Grove the fall before. He was absent at the time, but thankfully accepted and served. Very much to his surprise, his friends put him up for the captaincy of this company about to enter active service. They did not organize at home, however, but marched first to Beardstown, and then to Rushville and Schuyler County, where the election took place. Bill Kirkpatrick was a candidate against Lincoln, but made a very sorry showing. It had been said that Lincoln once worked for Kirkpatrick as a common laborer, and suffered some indignities at his hands. But the story as a whole is supported by no credible testimony. It is certain, however, that the planks for the boat built by Abe and his friends at the mouth of Spring Creek were sawed at the mill of a Mr. Kirkpatrick. It was then likely enough that Abe fell in the way of this man and learned to dislike him. At all events, when he had distanced Kirkpatrick long before they ever heard of Abe, he spoke of him spitefully and referred in no gentle terms to some old dispute. Quote, Damn him, said he to Green. I've beat him. He used me badly in our settlement for my toil. End quote. Captain Lincoln now made a very modest speech to his comrades, reciting the exceeding gratification their partiality afforded him, how undeserved he thought it, and how wholly unexpected it was. In conclusion, quote, he promised very plainly that he would do the best he could to prove himself worthy of that confidence. End quote. The troops rendezvoused at Beardstown and Rushville were formed into four regiments and a spy battalion. Captain Lincoln's company was attached to the regiment of Colonel Samuel Thompson. The whole force was placed under the command of General Whiteside, who was accompanied throughout the campaign by the governor in person. On the 27th of April, the army marched toward the mouth of Rock River, by way of Ukuqua on the Mississippi. The route was one of difficulty and danger, a great part of it lying through a country largely occupied by the enemy. The men were raw and restive under discipline. In the beginning they had no more respect for the, quote, rules and regulations, end quote, than for Solomon's Proverbs, or the Westminster Confession. Captain Lincoln's company is said to have been a particularly, quote, hard set of men, end quote who recognized no power but his. They were fighting men, 
and but for his personal authority, would have kept the camp in a perpetual uproar. At the crossing of Henderson River, a stream about fifty yards wide, and eight or ten feet deep, with very precipitous banks, they were compelled to make a bridge or causeway, with timbers cut by the troops, and a filling in of bushes, earth, or any other available material. This was the work of a day and night. Upon its completion, the horses and oxen were taken from the wagons, and the latter taken over by hand. But, when the horses came to cross, many of them were killed in sliding down the steep banks. Quote, While in camp here, says a private in Captain Lincoln's company, a general order was issued prohibiting the discharge of firearms within fifty steps of the camp. Captain Lincoln disobeyed the order by firing his pistol within ten steps of the camp, and for this violation of orders was put under arrest for that day, and his sword taken from him. But the next day his sword was restored, and nothing more was done in the matter. End quote. From Henderson River, the troops marched to Yellow Banks on the Mississippi. Quote, While at this place, Mr. Ben F. Irwin says, a considerable body of Indians of the Cherokee tribe came across the river from the Iowa side, with the white flag hoisted. These were the first Indians we saw. They were very friendly, and gave us a general war dance. We, in turn, gave them a sucker hoedown. All enjoyed the sport, and it is safe to say no man enjoyed it more than Captain Lincoln. End quote. From Yellow Banks, a rapid and exhaustive march of a few days brought the volunteers to the mouth of Rock River, where, quote, it was agreed between General Whiteside and General Atkinson of the regulars that the volunteers should march up Rock River, about fifty miles, to the Prophet's town, and there encamp to feed and rest their horses and await the arrival of the regular troops, in keelboats with provisions. Judge William Thomas, who again acted as quartermaster to the volunteers, made an estimate of the amount of provisions required until the boats could arrive, which was supplied, and then General Whiteside took up his line of march. End quote. Footnote. Ford's History of Illinois, Chapter 4. But Captain Lincoln's company did not march on the present occasion with the alacrity which distinguished their comrades of other corps. The orderly sergeant attempted to form company, but the company declined to be formed. The men, oblivious of wars and rumors of wars, mocked at the word of command, and remained between their blankets in a state of serene repose. For an explanation of these signs of passive mutiny, we must resort again to the manuscript of the private who gave the story of Captain Lincoln's first arrest. Quote, About the blank of April, we reached the mouth of Rock River. About three or four nights afterwards, a man named Ryle P. Green, commonly called Pot Green, belonging to a Green County Company, came to Orr Company and waked up the men, and proposed to them that, if they would furnish him with a tomahawk and four buckets, he would get into the officers' liquors and supply the men with wines and brandies. The desired articles were furnished him, and, with the assistance of one of our company, he procured the liquors. All this was entirely unknown to Captain Lincoln. In the morning, 
Captain Lincoln ordered his orderly to form company for parade. But when the orderly called the men to parade, they called parade, too, but couldn't fall into line. The most of the men were unmistakably drunk. The rest of the forces marched off and left Captain Lincoln's company behind. The company didn't make a start until about ten o'clock, and then, after marching about two miles, the drunken ones lay down and slept their drunk off. They overtook the forces that night. Captain Lincoln was again put under arrest, and was obliged to carry a wooden sword for two days. And this, although Captain Lincoln was entirely blameless in the matter. End quote. When General Whiteside reached Prophetstown, where he was to rest until the arrival of the regulars and the supplies, he disregarded the plan of operations concerted between him and Atkinson, and, burning the village to the ground, pushed on towards Dixon's Ferry, forty miles farther up the river. Nearing that place, he left his baggage wagons behind. The men threw away their allotments of provisions, or left them with the wagons, and in that condition a forced march was made to Dixon. There Whiteside found two battalions of mounted men under Major Stillman and Bailey, who clamored to be thrown forward, where they might get up an independent but glorious brush with the enemy on comparatively private account. The general had it not in his heart to deny these adventurous spirits, and they were promptly advanced to feel and disclose the Indian force supposed to be near at hand. Stillman accordingly moved up the bank of Old Man's Creek, since called Stillman's Run, to a point about twenty miles from Dixon, where, just before nightfall, he went into camp, or was about to do so, when several Indians were seen hovering along some raised ground nearly a mile distant. Straightway, Stillman's gallant fellows remounted, one by one, or two and two, and, without officers or orders, galloped away in pursuit. The Indians first shook a red flag, and then dashed off at the top of their speed. Three of them were overtaken and killed, but the rest performed with perfect skill the errand upon which they were sent. They led Stillman's command into an ambuscade, where lay Black Hawk himself, with seven hundred of his warriors. The pursuers recoiled and rode for their lives. Black Hawk bore down upon Stillman's camp. The fugitives, streaming back with the fearful cries respecting the numbers and ferocity of the enemy, spread consternation through the entire force. Stillman gave a hasty order to fall back, and the men fell back much faster and farther than he intended, for they never faced about or so much as stopped until they reached Whiteside's camp at Dixon. The first of them reached Dixon about twelve o'clock, and others came straggling in all night long and part of the next day, each party announcing themselves as the sole survivors of that stricken field, escaped solely by exercise of miraculous valor. Footnote. Quote, it is said that a big, tall Kentuckian, with a very loud voice, who was a colonel of the militia, but a private with Stillman, upon his arrival in camp, gave to General Whiteside and the wondering multitude the following glowing and bombastic account of the battle. Sirs, said he, our detachment was encamped amongst some scattering timber on the north side of Old Man's Creek. 
with the prairie from the north gently sloping down to our encampment. It was just after twilight, in the gloaming of the evening, when we discovered Black Hawk's army coming down upon us in solid column. They displayed in the form of a crescent upon the brow of the prairie, and such accuracy and precision of military movements were never witnessed by man. They were equal to the best troops of Wellington and Spain. I have said that the Indians came down in solid column, and displayed in the form of a crescent, and, what was most wonderful, there were large squares of cavalry resting upon the points of the curve, which squares were supported again by other columns fifteen deep, extending back through the woods, and over a swamp three-quarters of a mile, which again rested upon the main body of Black Hawk's army, bivouacked upon the banks of the Kishwaukee. It was a terrible and a glorious sight to see the tawny warriors as they rode along our flanks attempting to outflank us with the glittering moonbeams glistening from their polished blades and burnished spears. It was a sight well calculated to strike consternation into the stoutest and boldest heart, and accordingly our men soon began to break in small squads for tall timber. In a very little time the rout became general. The Indians were on our flanks, and threatened the destruction of the entire detachment. About this time, Major Stillman, Colonel Stevenson, Major Perkins, Captain Adams, Mr. Hackleton, and myself, with some others, threw ourselves into the rear to rally the fugitives and protect the retreat. But in a short time, all my companions fell, bravely fighting hand to hand with the savage enemy and I alone was left upon the field of battle. About this time I discovered, not far to the left, a corps of horsemen which seemed to be in tolerable order. I immediately deployed to the left, when, leaning down and placing my body in a recumbent posture upon the mane of my horse, so as to bring the heads of the horsemen between my eye and the horizon, I discovered by the light of the moon that there were gentlemen who did not wear hats, by which token I knew they were no friends of mine. I therefore made a retrograde movement, and recovered my former position, where I remained some time, meditating what further I could do in the service of my country, when a random ball came whistling by my ear, and plainly whispered to me, Stranger, you have no further business here. Upon hearing this, I followed the example of my companions in arms, and broke for tall timber and the way I run was not a little, and quit. This colonel was a lawyer just returning from the circuit, with a slight wardrobe and Chitty's pleadings packed in his saddle-bags, all of which were captured by the Indians. He afterwards related, with much vexation, that Black Hawk had decked himself out in his finery, appearing in the woods amongst his savage companions, dressed in one of the colonel's ruffled shirts, drawn over his deerskin leggings, with a volume of Chitty's pleadings under each arm. End quote. Ford's History of Illinois. End of footnote. The affair is known to history as Stillman's Defeat. Old John Hanks was in it, and speaks of it with shame and indignation, attributing the disaster to, quote, drunken men, cowardice, and folly, end quote. Though in this case, we should be slow to adopt his opinion of folly there was no doubt enough both on the part of whiteside and stillman but of drunkenness no public account makes any mention 
and individual cowardice is never to be imputed to American troops. These men were as brave as any that ever wore a uniform, and some of them performed good service afterwards. But when they went into this action, they were raw militia, a mere mob, and no mob can stand against discipline, even though it be but the discipline of the savage. The next day, Whiteside moved with all possible celerity to the field of Stillman's disaster, and finding no enemy, was forced to content himself with the melancholy duty of burying the mutilated and unsightly remains of the dead. All of them were scalped. Some had their heads cut off, others had their throats cut, and others still were mangled and dishonored in ways too shocking to be told. The army was now suffering from want of provisions. The folly of the commander in casting off his baggage train for the forced march on Dixon, the extravagance and improvidence of the men with their scanty rations, had exhausted the resources of the quartermasters, and, quote, except in the messes of the most careful and experienced, the camp was nearly destitute of food. The majority had been living on parched corn and coffee for two or three days, end quote. But, on the morning of the last march from Dixon, Quartermaster Thomas had succeeded in getting a little fresh beef from the only white inhabitant of that country, and this the men were glad to eat without bread. Quote, I can truly say I was often hungry, end quote, said Captain Lincoln, reviewing the events of this campaign. He was, doubtless, as destitute and wretched as the rest, but he was patient, quiet, and resolute. Hunger brought with it a discontented and mutinous spirit. The men complained bitterly of all they had been made to endure, and clamored loudly for a general discharge. But Captain Lincoln kept the even tenor of his way, and, when his regiment was disbanded, immediately enlisted as a private soldier in another company. From the battlefield, Whiteside returned to his old camp at Dixon, but determined, before doing so, to make one more attempt to retrieve his ill fortune. Black Hawk's pirogues were supposed to be lying a few miles distant, in a bend of the Rock River, and the capture of these would serve as some relief to the dreary series of errors and miscarriages which had hitherto marked the campaign. But Black Hawk had just been teaching him strategy in the most effective mode, and the present movement was undertaken with an excess of caution, almost as ludicrous as Stillman's bravado. Quote, to provide as well as might be against danger, one man was started at a time in the direction of the point. When he would get a certain distance, keeping in sight, a second would start, and so on, until a string of men extending five miles from the main army was made, each to look for Indians, and give the sign to right, left, or front, by hanging a hat on a bayonet, erect for the front, and right or left, as the case might be. To raise men to go ahead was with difficulty done, and some tried hard to drop back. But we had got through safe, and found the place deserted, leaving plenty of Indian signs, a dead dog and several scalps taken in Stillman's defeat, as we supposed them to have been taken. End quote. After this, the last of General Whiteside's futile attempts, he returned to the battlefield, and thence to Dixon, where he was joined by Atkinson with the regulars, and a long-coveted and much-needed supplies. One day, during these many marches and counter-marches, an old Indian found his way into the camp, weary, hungry, and helpless. 
he professed to be a friend of the whites, and, although it was an exceedingly perilous experiment for one of his color, he ventured to throw himself upon the mercy of the soldiers. But the men first murmured, and then broke out into fierce cries for his blood. Quote, we have come out to fight the Indians, said they, and by God we intend to do it. End quote. The poor Indian, now in the extremity of his distress and peril, did what he ought to have done before. He threw down before his assailants a soiled and crumpled paper, which he implored them to read before his life was taken. It was a letter of character and safe conduct from General Cass, pronouncing him a faithful man, who had done good service in the cause for which this army was enlisted. But it was too late. The men refused to read it, or thought it a forgery, and were rushing with fury upon the defenseless old savage, when Captain Lincoln bounded between them and their appointed victim. Quote, men, said he, and his voice for a moment stilled the agitation around him. This must not be done. He must not be shot and killed by us. End quote. Quote, but, said some of them, the Indian is a damned spy. End quote. Lincoln knew that his own life was now in only less danger than that of the poor creature that crouched behind him. During the whole of this scene, Captain Lincoln seemed to rise to an unusual height of stature. The towering form, the passion and resolution in his face, the physical power and terrible will exhibited in every motion of his body, every gesture of his arm, produced an effect upon the furious mob as unexpected perhaps to him as to any one else. They paused, listened, fell back, and then sullenly obeyed what seemed to be the voice of reason, as well as authority. But there were still some murmurs of disappointed rage, and half-suppressed exclamations, which looked towards vengeance of some kind. At length, one of the men, a little bolder than the rest, but evidently feeling that he spoke for the whole, cried out, quote, This is cowardly on your part, Lincoln, end quote whereupon the tall captain's figure stretched a few inches higher again. He looked down upon these varlets who would have murdered a defenseless old Indian, and now quailed before his single hand, with lofty contempt. The oldest of his acquaintances, even Bill Green, who saw him grapple Jack Armstrong and defy the bullies at his back, never saw him so much aroused before. Quote, if any man thinks I am a coward, let him test it, said he. End quote. Quote, Lincoln, responded a new voice, you are larger and heavier than we are. End quote. Quote, this you can guard against. Choose your weapons. End quote, returned the rigid captain. Whatever may be said of Mr. Lincoln's choice of means for the preservation of military discipline, it was certainly very effectual in this case. There was no more disaffection in his camp, and the word coward was never coupled with his name again. Mr. Lincoln understood his men better than those who would be disposed to criticize his conduct. He has often declared himself that his life and character were both at stake, and would probably have been lost, had he not at that supremely critical moment forgotten the officer and asserted the man. To have ordered the offenders under arrest would have created a formidable mutiny. To have tried and punished them would have been impossible. They could scarcely be called soldiers. They were merely armed citizens, with a nominal military organization. They were but recently enlisted, 
and their term of service was just about to expire. Had he preferred charges against them, and offered to submit their deferences to a court of any sort, it would have been regarded as an act of personal pusillanimity, and his efficiency would have been gone forever. Lincoln was believed to be the strongest man in his regiment, and no doubt was. He was certainly the best wrestler in it, and after they left Beardstown, nobody ever disputed the fact. He is said to have, quote, done the wrestling for the company, end quote, and one man insists that he always had a handkerchief tied around his person in readiness for the sport. For a while it was firmly believed that no man in the army could throw him down. His company confidently pitted him against the field, and were willing to bet all they had on the result. At length, one of Mr. Thompson came forward and accepted the challenge. He was, in fact, the most famous wrestler in the western country. It is not certain that the report of his achievements had ever reached the ears of Mr. Lincoln or his friends, but at any rate they eagerly made a match with him as a champion not unworthy of their own. Thompson's power and skill, however, were as well known to certain persons in the army as Mr. Lincoln's were to others. Each side was absolutely certain of the victory, and bet according to their faith. Lincoln's company and their sympathizers put up all their portable property, and some perhaps not their own, including, quote, knives, blankets, tomahawks, end quote, and all the most necessary articles of a soldier's outfit. When the men first met, Lincoln was convinced that he could throw Thompson, but after tussling with him a brief space in presence of the anxious assemblage, he turned to his friends and said, quote, This is the most powerful man I ever had hold of. He will throw me, and you will lose your all, unless I act on the defensive. He managed, nevertheless, to hold him off for some time, end quote. but at last Thompson got the crotch hoist on him, and although Lincoln attempted with all his wonderful strength to break the hold, by sliding away, a few moments decided his fate. He was fairly thrown. As it required two out of three falls to decide the bets, Thompson and he immediately came together again, and with very nearly the same result. Lincoln fell under, but the other man fell too. There was just enough of uncertainty about it to furnish a pretext for a hot dispute and a general fight. Accordingly, Lincoln's men instantly began the proper preliminaries to a fracas, Quote, we were taken by surprise, says Mr. Green, and, being unwilling to give up our property and lose our bets, got up an excuse as to the result. We declared the fall a kind of dog-fall, did so apparently angrily. End quote. The fight was coming on apace, and bade fair to be a big and bloody one, when Lincoln rose up and said, quote, Boys, the man actually threw me once fair, broadly so and the second time, this very fall, he threw me fairly, though not so apparently so. End quote. He would countenance no disturbance, and his unexpected and somewhat astonishing magnanimity ended all attempts to raise one. Mr. Lincoln's good friend, Mr. Green, the principal, though not the sole authority for the present account of his adventure in behalf of the Indian and his wrestle with Thompson, mentions one important incident which is found in no other manuscript and which gives us a glimpse of Mr. Lincoln in a scene of another sort. Quote, One other word in reference to Mr. Lincoln's care for the health, welfare, and justice to his men. 
some officers of the United States had claimed that the regular army had preference in the rations and pay. Mr. Lincoln was ordered to do some act which he deemed unauthorized. He, however, obeyed, but went to the officer and said to him, Sir, you forget that we are not under the rules and regulations of the War Department at Washington, are only volunteers under the orders and regulations of Illinois. Keep in your own sphere, and there will be no difficulty, but resistance will hereafter be made to your unjust orders, and further, my men must be equal in all particulars, in rations, arms, camps, etc., to the regular army. The man saw that Mr. Lincoln was right, and determined to have justice done. Always after this we were treated equally well, and just as the regular army was, in every particular. This brave, just, and humane act, in behalf of the volunteers, at once attached officers in rank to him, as with hooks of steel. When the army reached Dixon, the almost universal discontent of the men had grown so manifest and so ominous, they could no longer be safely disregarded. They longed for the flesh-pots of Egypt, and fiercely demanded their discharge. Although their time had not expired, it was determined to march them by way of Pawpaw Grove to Ottawa, and there concede what the governor feared he had no power to withhold. Quote, While on our march from Dixon to Fox River, says Mr. Irwin, one night while in camp, which was formed in a square enclosing about forty acres, our horses, outside grazing, got scared about nine o'clock, and a grand stampede took place. They ran right through our lines in spite of us, ran over many of us. No man knows what noise a thousand horses make running, lest he had been there. It beats a young earthquake, especially among scared men, and certain they were scared then. We expected the Indians to be on us that night. Fire was thrown, drums beat, fifes played, which added additional fright to the horses. We saw no real enemy that night, but a line of battle was formed. There were no eyes for sleep that night. We stood to our posts in line, and what frightened the horses is yet unknown. During this short Indian campaign, continues the same gentleman, we had some hard times. Often hungry, but we had a great deal of sport, especially of nights, foot racing, some horse racing, jumping, telling anecdotes, in which Lincoln beat all, keeping up a constant laughter and good humor all the time. Among the soldiers some card-playing and wrestling, in which Lincoln took a prominent part. I think it is safe to say he was never thrown in a wrestle. Mr. Irwin, it seems, still regards the Thompson affair as a dogfall. While in the army, he kept a handkerchief tied around him near all the time for wrestling purposes, and loved the sport as well as any one could. He was seldom ever beat jumping. During the campaign, Lincoln himself was always ready for an emergency. He endured hardships like a good soldier. He never complained, nor did he fear danger. When fighting was expected, or danger apprehended, Lincoln was the first to say, let's go. He had the confidence of every man of his company, and they strictly obeyed his orders at a word. His company was all young men, and full of sport. One night in Warren County, a white hog, 
a young sow, came into our lines, which showed more good sense to my mind than any hog I ever saw. This hog swam creeks and rivers, and went with us clear through to, I think, the mouth of Fox River, and there the boys killed it, or would doubtless have come home with us. If it got behind in daylight as we were marching, which it did sometimes, it would follow on the track and come to us at night. It was naturally the cleverest, friendly disposed hog any man ever saw, and its untimely death was by many of us greatly deplored. For we all liked the hog for its friendly disposition and good manners, for it never molested anything and kept in its proper place. End quote. On the twenty eighth of May, the volunteers were discharged. The governor had already called for two thousand more men to take their places, but, in the meantime, he made the most strenuous efforts to organize a small force out of the recently discharged to protect the frontiers until the new levies were ready for service. He succeeded in raising one regiment and a spy company. Many officers of distinction, among them General Whiteside himself, enlisted as private soldiers, and served in that capacity to the end of the war. Captain Lincoln became Private Lincoln of the Independent Spy Company, Captain Early commanding, and although he was never in an engagement, he saw some hard service in scouting and trailing, as well as in carrying messages and reports. About the middle of June, the new troops were ready for the field, and soon after moved up to Rock River. Meanwhile, the Indians had overrun the country. Quote, they had scattered their war parties all over the north from Chicago to Galena, and from the Illinois River into the territory of Wisconsin. They occupied every grove, waylaid every road, hung around every settlement, and attacked every party of white men that attempted to penetrate the country. End quote. There had been some desultory fighting at various points. Captain Snyder, in whose company General Whiteside was a private, had met the Indians at Burr Oak, Grove, and had a sharp engagement. Mr. St. Vrain, an Indian agent, with a small party of assistants, had been treacherously murdered near Fort Armstrong. Several men had been killed at the lead mines, and the Wisconsin volunteers under Dodge had signally punished the Indians that killed them. Galena had been threatened, and Fort Apple, twenty miles from Galena, had sustained a bloody siege of fifteen hours. Captain Stevenson of Galena had performed an act which, quote, equaled anything in modern warfare in daring and desperate courage, end quote, by driving a party of Indians larger than his own detachment into a dense thicket, and there charging them repeatedly until he was compelled to retire, wounded himself, and leaving three of his men dead on the ground. Thenceforward the tide was fairly turned against Black Hawk. Twenty-four hundred men, under experienced officers, were now in the field against him, and, although he succeeded in eluding his pursuers for a brief time, every retreat was equivalent to a reverse in battle, and all his maneuvers were retreats. In the latter part of July he was finally overtaken by the volunteers under Henry, along the bluffs of the Wisconsin River, and defeated in a decisive battle. His ruin was complete. He abandoned all hope of conquest, and pressed in disorderly and disastrous retreat toward the Mississippi, in vain expectation of placing that barrier between him and his enemy. On the fourth day, after crossing the Wisconsin, 
General Atkinson's advance reached the high grounds near the Mississippi. Henry and his brigade, having won the previous victory, were placed at the rear in the order of march, with the ungenerous purpose of preventing them from winning another. But Black Hawk here resorted to a stratagem, which very nearly saved the remnant of his people, and in the end completely foiled the intentions of Atkinson regarding Henry and his men. The old chief, with a high heart which even such a succession of reverses could not subdue, took twenty warriors and deliberately posted himself, determined to hold the army in check, or lead it away on a false trail, while his main body was being transferred to the other bank of the river. He accordingly made his attack in a place where he was favored by trees, logs, and tall grass, which prevented the discovery of his numbers. Finding his advance engaged, Atkinson formed the line of battle, and ordered a charge. The Black Hawk conducted his retreat with such consummate skill that Atkinson believed he was just at the heels of the whole Indian army, and under this impression continued the pursuit far up the river. When Henry came to the spot where the fighting had taken place, he readily detected the trick by various evidences about the ground. Finding the main trail in the immediate vicinity, he boldly fell upon it without orders, and followed it until he came up with the Indians in a swamp on the margin of the river, where he easily surprised and scattered them. Atkinson, hearing the firing in the swamp, turned back, and arrived just in time to assist in the completion of the massacre. A few of the Indians had already crossed the river. A few had taken refuge on a little willow island in the middle of the stream. The island was charged, the men wading to it and water up to their armpits. The Indians were dislodged and killed on the spot, were shot in the water while attempting to swim to the western shore. Fifty prisoners only were taken, and the greater part of these were squaws and children. This was the Battle of the Bad Axe, a terrific slaughter, considering the numbers engaged, and the final ruin of Black Hawk's fortunes. Black Hawk and his twenty warriors, among whom was his own son, made the best of their way to the Dallas on the Wisconsin, where they seemed to have waited passively whatever fate their enemies should contrive for them. There were some Sioux and Winnebagoes in Atkinson's camp, men who secretly pretended to sympathize with Black Hawk, and, while acting as guides to the army, had really led it astray on many painful and perilous marches. It is certain that Black Hawk had counted on the assistance of those tribes, but after the fight on the Wisconsin, even those who had consented to act as his emissaries about the person of the hostile commander not only deserted him, but volunteered to hunt him down. They now offered to find him, take him, and bring him in, provided that base and cowardly service should be suitably acknowledged. They were duly employed. Black Hawk became their prisoner, and was presented by them to the Indian agent, with two or three shameless and disgusting speeches from his captors. He and his son were carried to Washington City, and then through the principal cities of the country, after which President Jackson released him from captivity, and sent him back to his own people. He lived to be eighty years old, honored and beloved by his tribe, and after his death was buried on an eminence overlooking the Mississippi, with such rights as are accorded only to the most distinguished of native captains, sitting upright in war dress and paint, covered by a conspicuous mound of earth. We have given a rapid and perhaps an unsatisfactory sketch 
over the comparatively great events which brought the Black Hawk War to a close. So much at least was necessary that the reader might understand the several situations in which Mr. Lincoln found himself during the short term of his second enlistment. We fortunately possess a narrative of his individual experience, covering the whole of that period, from the pen of George W. Harrison, his friend, companion, and messmate. It is given in full, for there is no part of it that would not be injured by the touch of another hand. It is an extremely interesting story, founded upon accurate personal knowledge, and told in a perspicuous and graphic style, admirably suited to the subject. Quote, the new company thus formed was called the Independent Spy Company, not being under the control of any regiment or brigade, but receiving orders directly from the commander-in-chief, and always, when with the army, camping within the lines, and having many other privileges, such as never having camp duties to perform, drawing rations as much and as often as we pleased, etc., Dr. Early, deceased, of Springfield, was elected captain. Five members constituted a tent, or messed together. Our mess consisted of Mr. Lincoln, Johnston, a half-brother of his, Franchier, Wyatt, and myself. The independent spy company was used chiefly to carry messages, to send an express, to spy the enemy, and to ascertain facts. I suppose the nearest we were to doing battle, was at Gradiot's Grove near Galena. The spy company of Posey's brigade was many miles in advance of the brigade, when it stopped in the grove at noon for refreshments. Some of the men had turned loose their horses, and others still had theirs in hand, when five or six Sac and Fox Indians came near them. Many of the white men broke after them, some on horseback, some on foot, in great disorder and confusion thinking to have much sport with their prisoners immediately. The Indians thus decoyed them about two miles from the little cabins in the grove, keeping just out of danger, when suddenly up sprang from the tall prairie grass two hundred and fifty painted warriors, with long spears in hand, and tomahawks and butcher knives in their belts, of deerskin and buffalo, and raised such a yell that our friends supposed them to be more numerous than Black Hawk's whole clan, and, instantly filled with consternation, commenced to retreat. But the savages soon began to spear them, making it necessary to halt in the flight and give them a fire, at which time they killed two Indians, one of them being a young chief, gaily apparelled. Again, in the utmost horror, such as savage yells alone can produce, they fled for the little fort in the grove. Having arrived, they found the balance of their company, terrified by the screams of the whites, and the yells of the savages, closely shut up the double cabin, into which they quickly plunged, and found the much-needed respite. The Indians then prowled around the grove, shooting nearly all the company's horses, and stealing the balance of them. There, from cracks between the logs of the cabin, three Indians were shot and killed in the act of reaching for the reins of bridles and horses. They endeavored to conceal their bodies by trees in an old field, which surrounded the fort but, reaching with sticks for bridles, they exposed their heads and necks, where our men wheeled and fired, making five Indians known to be killed, and on their retreat from the prairie to the grove, five white men were cut into small pieces. 
The field of this action is the greatest battle of ground we saw. The dead still lay unburied until after we arrived at sunrise the next day. The forded men, fifty strong, had not ventured to go out until they saw us, when they rejoiced greatly. That friends and not dreaded enemies had come. They looked like men just out of cholera, having passed through the cramping stage. The only part we could then act was to seek the lost men, and with hatchets and hands to bury them. We buried the white men, and trailed the dead young chief to where he had once been drawn on the grass a half-mile, and concealed in the thicket. Those who trailed this once noble warrior, and found him, were Lincoln, I think, Wyatt, and myself. By order of General Atkinson, our company started on this expedition one evening, traveled all night, and reached Gratiot's at sunrise. A few hours after, General Posey came up to the fort with his brigade of nearly a thousand men, when he positively refused to pursue the Indians. Being strongly solicited by Captain Early, Lincoln, and others, squads of Indians still showing themselves in a menacing manner, one and a half miles distant. Our company was disbanded at Whitewater, Wisconsin, a short time before the massacre at Bad Axe by General Henry, and most of our men started for home on the following morning. But it so happened the night previous to starting on this long trip, Lincoln's horse and mine were stolen, probably by soldiers of our own army, and we were thus compelled to start outside the cavalcade. But I laughed at our fate, and he joked at it, and we all started off merrily. But the generous men of our company walked and rode by turns with us, and we fared about equal with the rest. But for this generosity, our legs would have had to do the better work, for in that day this then dreary route furnished no horses to buy or to steal, and whether on horse or afoot, we always had company, for many of the horses' backs were too sore for riding. Thus we came to Peoria. Here we bought a canoe, in which we two paddled our way to Peckin. The other members of our company, separating in various directions, stimulated by the proximity of home, could never have consented to travel at our usual tardy road. At Peckin, Lincoln made an oar with which to row our little boat, while I went through the town in order to buy provisions for the trip. One of us pulled away at one oar, while the other sat astern to steer or prevent circling. The river, being very low, was without current, so that we had to pull hard to make half the speed of legs on land. In fact, we let her float at night, and on the next morning, always found the object still visible that we were beside us the previous evening. The water was remarkably clear, for this river of plants, and the fish appeared to be sporting with us as we moved over or near them. On the next day after we left Peckin, we overhauled a raft of saw-logs, with two men afloat on it, to urge it on with poles and to guide it in the channel. We immediately pulled up to them, and went on the raft, where we were made welcome by various demonstrations, especially by that of invitation to a feast on fish, cornbread, eggs, butter, and coffee, just prepared for our benefit. Of these good things we ate almost immoderately, for it was the only warm meal we had made for several days. While preparing it, and after dinner, Lincoln entertained them, and they entertained us for a couple of hours very amusingly. This slow mode of travel was, at the time, a new mode, and the novelty made it for a short time agreeable. We descended the Illinois to Havana, where we sold our boat, and again set out the old way, over the sand ridges for Petersburg. 
as we drew near home the impulse became stronger and urged us on amazingly the long strides of lincoln often slipping back in the loose sand six inches every step were just right for me and he was greatly diverted when he noticed me behind him stepping along in his tracks to keep from slipping about three days after leaving the army at whitewater we saw a battle in full operation about two miles in advance of us lincoln was riding a young horse the property of l d Matheny. i was riding a sprightly animal belonging to john t stuart at the time we came in sight of the scene our two voluntary footmen were about three-fourths of a mile in advance of us and we about a half a mile behind most of our company and three or four on foot still behind us leading some sore-backed horses but the owners of our horses came running back and meeting us all in full speed rightfully ordered us to dismount we obeyed they mounted and all pressed on toward the conflict they on horseback and we on foot in a few moments of hard walking and terribly close observation lincoln said to me george this can't be a very dangerous battle reply much shooting nothing falls it was at once decided to be a sham for the purpose of training cavalry instead of indians having attacked a few white soldiers and a few of our own men on their way home for the purpose of killing them End quote. End of chapter 5 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida